iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. You got any like talents? Like hidden talents? Can you dance? You can tap dance? Can you? No. Here, I'll play a song and you dance. Okay. I can't really sing. I have to sing goofy in order to sing. Like I have to sing stupid. Okay? Okay. It's because I love you most. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome tonight's guest, Derek Sion France, and this evening's guest moderator, Eugene Hernandez of the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Derek, hello. Hello, Eugene. Thank you for Should we sit down? Yes. Thank you. All right. Uh, thanks for being here. Um, has anyone, I know the answer is probably no, but has anyone seen the film already? Just out of curiosity, a few people have. Okay, good. Um, most of the people in the audience haven't seen the film. and However, those who listen in on the podcast in the future will likely have seen the film. So we'll talk a little bit about some of the movie. We'll talk about how it was made. We'll watch a few scenes. Um, Let's, let's start by just getting a little bit of background on, on you, Derek. And uh, I guess uh, you and I met a long time ago at the Sundance Film Festival. You were there with a film called Brother Tide. Um, yes. What's your background? Where did you get started? How did you get started in filmmaking? Yeah, that was 98, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, my whole life I always wanted to be a filmmaker, you know. Um, when I was like uh, six years old, my brother, he, for his birthday, for his ninth birthday, he got a tape recorder. And I remember I stole it from him on his birthday and started recording, uh, you know, and making, you know, making skits with it, make, telling different stories on it. I'd use it to try to get performances out of people like uh, my grandma, try to get her to speak Chinese on it. Or I would uh, use it as a surveillance device. I would hide it in my jacket or something and then see if my brother would say something mean to me, you know, and then I would use it as, you know, blackmail against him. Um, so I was always using those tapes. I have the hours and hours of these tapes. I think I was learning everything you know, basically every tool I used in making Blue Valentine, I used on those old tapes, you know, uh, you know, in terms of storytelling, performances and instigations and surveillance techniques, whatever. Um, and then when I was 13, I picked up a camera for the first time, uh, a video camera. I borrowed a video camera from my librarian. And, and by the time I went to school, film school, when I was 18, I had like 20 short films I'd made. 
I went to a couple of years of film school in, in Boulder and uh, studied under like Stan Brackage and Phil Solomon and uh, and uh, and then dropped out when I was 20 to make Brother Tide and uh, you know premiered it at Sundance in 1998 and uh, you know nothing ever happened with that film it it kind of you know it kind of just like went off into obscurity but there's a few people that have seen it you know um and then i started writing blue valentine immediately after that in 1998 and uh it just took like 12 years to get it to finally get it off the ground you know 66 drafts 12 years a manifesto 1224 storyboards before it could finally get done you know and the film opens on the 31st if i'm not mistaken is that correct december 31st yeah new york la um, why did you want to be a filmmaker? You said you always wanted to be a filmmaker. What what gave you the idea to become one? Or were there certain movies that you that you connected with? Or what yeah, was I don't that? I don't know if it was ever a conscious decision. I just it seems to me like it was the only thing I could ever do or ever wanted to do. But I know I, I do think uh, the VCR Your take you to the movies a lot. Did you watch? Yeah, I went and saw the China Syndrome. That was my first movie. Uh, I, I don't remember what it was, what it was about, except it had something to do with like a nuclear reactor or something. It was so terrifying to me, you know, as a kid. And then uh, I remember my mom took me to see The World According to Garp one time, which was so uncomfortable to watch that movie with your mother, you know. And uh, but I was, I think I'm a member of the VHS generation, you know. And uh, I think we've talked about that before. It's like. You know, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm my, again, my brother's birthdays were like so meaningful to me because on his eighth birthday, we rented a, we rented a, a VCR and, and rented Creepshow and Airplane 2. And we watched that on his birthday. And then on my birthday, a few months later, we rented a VCR and rented Creepshow and Airplane 2. And then uh, in April, we bought our own VCR. It was one of those top loader VCRs. And then uh, they were playing Creepshow and Airplane 2 on HBO and we recorded it. And uh, then I watched it. Every, I watched those movies every day, and then we slowly started to, to build up this library of movies of, you know, like, you know, and we'd have three movies on a tape, you know, and you could fast forward to seven sixty two on the counter, and the Deer Hunter would start, you know, and uh, so I spent my whole childhood just watching movies and like watching this library that we would build up of movies, you know, and just studying them, and then I'd go and uh, you know like rent this or borrow this you know camcorder from my librarian, and then just try to make my own you know, movies, you know, stupid kid movies, but still. Were and you I'd copying always... those movies or were you creating your own stories and then shooting Oh, no, shooting I'd make them? my own, yeah. I mean, you know, of course there would, there would be copies, you know, like, you know, I had never seen Scorsese's The Big Shave, but I'd loved him so much, you know, growing up. I used to have his picture above my bed and also a Porsche 911 was also above my bed. Um, aspiration. Yeah, aspiration. Anyway, I look at that car nowadays and it's so ridiculous to me, you know? I can't stand it. So many things change over time, you know? I used to think that car was so cool. And then there's that actor from that George Burns movie, 18 again, and I thought he was so lame, but then I saw him on TV a couple weeks ago and I thought he was so great. And I, I can't stand that car anymore. Anyway, I don't know what happens. Um, anyway, I still like Scorsese, especially those old movies. But anyway, I, I had heard of The Big Shave. So my first movie in film school was like a homage to the big shave without ever having seen it. You know what I mean? So there was, I don't think I was, you know, like Goodfellas though, it's like such a hugely influential movie. I think not just to me, but to every filmmaker, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, all of my old home family movies with starring my grandma would have a voiceover like Goodfellas. You know what I mean? It would move like that. You know, it was, try it was trying to use those same techniques, the grammar. You know what I mean? I wasn't copying those films. I was just using their grammar, you know?
you ever go back and watch those films now? Is it hard to watch them? Have you? Yeah, I have kids now, so I don't really get to watch movies anymore. And you know, uh, I mean, when I watch a movie, it takes me like four nights to watch it. You know, because I'm so exhausted by the time I start it. And uh, what's the last movie from my childhood that I watched? Oh, I can't even remember. Yeah, I don't really watch. I, I, that's the bummer, you know. Yeah. When I first moved to New York City, I'd watch nine movies a, a week, you know, in the movie theater. And then, you know, once once I have kids, I just would rather spend time with them. And then, you know, I feel like my early films were more, uh, the early stuff I did was more influenced by f- other movies, you know. And then, uh, especially Brother Tide, that was so influenced by other movies. And I think with Blue Valentine, because I was forced to wait 12 years, I started to have a life, you know, and fell in love and had kids. And I think that, that this movie was... It wasn't so inspired by other movies. It was more inspired by life, you know? And uh, and that was the whole point of making this movie, was to try to put some life up on the screen and not, uh, you know, movie land, you know? Well, let's talk a bit about that. I mean, obviously, a, a film changes over the course of a couple of years. In this case, you waited 10, 12 years before making a film that you started writing at the time that you went to Sundance in 98, I guess. Um, you've said before that that the film that that your two greatest fears, I guess, were your, your your parents breaking up and like a nuclear holocaust, right? Those were like your yes, sort of, and and the idea of um, exploring those fears uh, and yet having to wait so long to finally um, get that movie made. Um, how did the movie change over the course of that time as you were living this life, falling in love, having kids? Yeah. Have you been able to think about how that movie uh, shifted or how it might have been different had you made it, you know, five, six, seven years ago? Yeah, I mean, if I would have made it when I wanted to make it initially 12, 12 years ago, excuse me, I think it would have been uh, a lot more fake. You know, it would have been um, just not lived in, do you know? Uh, I, I think it's such a blessing. I felt like it was a curse. I, 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 was, I was so miserable for those 12 years not making the film. I felt like such a fraud to everyone that I would meet, you know, because they'd always, you know, I think I met you like over the years. You probably thought I was crazy, didn't you? You probably thought I was never going to make the film. I mean, didn't you? I thought I you was. Thought I was, was wondering. A- I mean, you, you you talked about the movie very early on, and then I and I we'd cross paths every once in a while, and then somewhere about the halfway mark, yeah, um, I actually thought it was actually going to happen. Yeah. So I thought this sounds really cool. Derek's going to finally make a movie. I was a fan of Brother Tide. And, you know, six years in, I'm like, okay, this is actually finally going to happen. He's going to make this movie great. Yeah. And then I didn't see you again for a very long time. Yeah. And then a couple of years before this past Sundance, it actually started to happen. Yeah. And, but you were making commercials. You were doing other work. Yeah, I was keeping but busy. I, I won a million dollars of one of those giant checks, you know. Did you know that? I won a million dollars. Literally a million dollars? Yeah, I mean, I don't have the money. I basically got a big check, um, uh, one of those big checks that they take pictures of you. I entered this Chrysler film competition. It was like an Ed McMahon thing where he comes no, like No, no, no. It was all film competition, but it was for, br- for, for Blue Valentine. I was trying to get, you know, I was doing everything I could, un- overturning every rock I could. I thought I was playing like a chess game when I was making like 10,000 moves and I still couldn't win the game. You know what I mean? It was... It was so maddening. But yeah, I won this million dollar film competition. And then that money, you know, I had some actors signed up for that, but I didn't want to make it with them. So I pulled the plug on it, you know. And I basically have this check in my house, this million dollar check that my kids race their Hot Wheels down, you know. It's a good ramp. Yeah, it's a great ramp. They love it. I mean, it's bent. It's, yeah, they jump on it. It's, 
it's tattered dreams, I guess. We could we could spend yeah. a lot of time talking about the the business side of the challenge of getting a film financed and made. Yes, Let's put yes. that aside. Okay. Let's talk about okay. some okay, of the creative, the emotional, the creative, creative issues stuff, and creative yeah. challenges. Okay, it was just okay. So, yeah, twelve years ago, and and every and eleven, ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one years ago, it, I wasn't ready because. Uh, you know, the film still had the artifice on it. You know, it had the the movie polish on it. You know, the very first draft of the script, Dean and Cindy, you know that scene where they just, in the trailer, where they play the ukulele and dance? I mean, that scene took place with them at a, an amusement park, you know, in front of a Ferris wheel. And they weren't playing music. They were, like, uh, you know, having some corny conversation about, uh, you know, I don't know, books and, you know, getting strong because you're lifting your books. It was just, it was a corny movie scene, basically, you know, that was trying to express young love by putting two people in front of an ecstatic background of like a, a carnival, you know what I mean? But I think, I think what I was doing was writing, a, writing scenes into the film, which I had seen before, but not necessarily experienced, you know, or not, and, and the great thing about finally waiting to shoot this movie is when we, when we finally did, it was alive. It wasn't even my experience anymore it was and it wasn't the actor's experience it was we were creating new experiences for the movie like that that scene where they sing and dance that that was a a single take you know of a real moment that happened where neither ryan or michelle knew what the other one was going to do you know and so but you know what they are experiencing on camera was exactly what i was experiencing behind the camera which is exactly what the audience experiences when they see the movie it's we tried to fill the movie with these living moments and and you know, so so one step of that was stripping the artifice off the script and allowing for that. The second step of that was I started making documentaries over these twelve years, and uh, basically uh, learning the skills to uh, to listen as a filmmaker. You know, learning how to listen, learning how to uh, you know put actors into situations and let those great actors kind of live and thrive in those situations. You know, and uh, yeah, I, I'm thankful for that. So let me dig in a bit, a bit, a bit more on those on that point as it relates to the scene we saw in the trailer. There's a there's a way you're working with uh, Michelle and Ryan, and maybe you could elaborate a bit on on that process, the way you're working with them. You've already hinted yeah. at it a few times in the way you've answered other questions, but just to give folks who are who are <clears throat> listening and who are yeah. watching this a uh, bit more background. Yeah, I think as a in doc, you know in documentary film, I I was immediately like kind of like hit over the head, uh, you know, kind of like knocked out of this, the traditional way of thinking as a director, which is the Cecil B. DeMille image of a director, which is the director with the megaphone, who's basically pointing his finger and telling people what to do, you know? And uh, in documentary films, it's not like that. You don't get to tell people what to do. I think you, you have to be sharp and intuitive and in, in moments and ready to capture moments, you know. And you have to try to, with interview subjects, you have to try to bring out the best or worst in them. You know what I mean? It's a different kind of performance, but it's always about surprises, you know. It's always about life. And you can never choose in a documentary where someone lives. I did a documentary on Puff Daddy, and he lived on, uh, you know, the Upper West Side or, you know, Midtown, like, 50, you know, 68th floor of some building. I couldn't choose for him to live any place else. I had to go there, you know what I mean? And and there's certain humble kind of selflessness, kind of egoless filmmaking when you make a documentary. And, and I think that image of the megaphone gets turned to your ear and becomes a listening device. And so, 
and I love that kind of filmmaking, you know, and I loved what I had learned from people making those films. And so I had this film, Blue Valentine, which I had written 66 drafts of. I had storyboarded all these 1,224 shots. I had a manifesto written. And the first day we started shooting, I got nervous that it was going to be flat or stale or too expected or overthought or overbaked, overcooked, whatever you want to say. It was like... I had thought about it too much, you know, and I thought the biggest danger for me at that point was that the film would be just dead. It would be a dead movie, you know, and uh, so I asked Ryan and Michelle, I said, you know, we can always trust this script, but please, if only if you only do the script, I'm going to be so bored watching it. You know, I've had to live with the script forever. Please make it please make it fresh, you know, please break it. Let's let's give it some life, you know, and so. Uh, that's a good, and how yeah. did that play out in that scene where they're singing? Oh. And, well, they're and then, singing well, and then how in the, in the bridge also? Yeah, in the scene where they're singing. So Ryan, about a year before we started shooting, you know, had him written into the script that he was a musician, and uh, he uh, he called me on the phone. He was like, "Hey, w- Derek, what do you think about if I play the ukulele?" And I was like, uh, "You know, can you come up with another instrument? I don't know. I don't think the ukulele is so good, you know." And he said, uh, so anyway, about a, another week goes by and he tells me, he, you know, he calls me up and leaves me a voice message where he's playing that song. And it's so beautiful, you know, it reminded me of Elvis in 1956, you know, he had that same quality in his voice and such a beautiful song and the ukulele was right for him. So, um, you know, so I told him, okay, keep that, keep it in your pocket. And then meanwhile, I had meetings with Michelle where I asked her, you know, do you have any special talents, you know? And she said, well, I, I used to tap dance. I said, okay, great. Whatever you do, don't tell Ryan about that, you know? And then we set out to shoot this night and we were, uh, you know, we were basically had 12 blocks of a street in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. And, uh, and I just told Ryan and Michelle we had from from dusk till dawn to shoot. And they had all built, the, you know, I hadn't worked with Michelle since 2003, Ryan since 2005, and they all had this, they all had their bag of tricks, so to speak, or they all had their character work done. They had all, like, prepped their characters, you know. And so I just told them to go get to know each other on this street, you know, and we would just film them walking up and down the street, and they would just talk and ask questions, buy ice cream together, just live, you know, get to know each other, unscripted, you know. And uh, and I said, but the only thing is, when you come to the bridal store where there's, you know, wedding dresses and, and uh, tuxedos, I said, that's your trigger to ask each other about your your secret talent, your special talent, you know. And so they're walking and they come to that bridal store and Ryan stops Michelle and says, do you have any special talents? And that's when she breaks out with the tap dance and he, and he has the ukulele. And so neither one of them had experienced that. They didn't know what the other one was going to do. So it was a true surprise, you know, surprised them, surprised to me and hopefully a surprise to the audience, you know. So let, let, me, uh, let me ask you a bit about the casting process. Um, tell me a bit more about why you're laughing. <laughs> Go ahead. Let me ask you a bit more about the casting process. Tell me about how you uh, came to work with each of these actors um, and in what order. Yeah, I met Michelle in 2003. She was hot off that show, Dawson's Creek. And uh, she had read uh, like draft 42 of the script or something. And uh, she really liked it. She came to a meeting at a coffee shop down on the Lower East Side and she had gifts for me. She had like a book of poetry and a CD. And uh, we just had an instant dialogue about the film, you know, and I went back and tried to get it financed with her. But, you know, she wasn't this is like pre Brokeback Mountain days and she wasn't a financeable name at that time. So we had to wait, you know, Uh, but it was a blessing because honestly, when she was 21, 22, she wasn't ready to do both sides of this movie, you know. 
And then uh, 2005, I met Ryan. My producers, uh, Jamie Patrickoff, Alex Olofsky, and Lynette Howell, introduced me to Ryan because they had just produced Half Nelson. And uh, they thought we would, you know, enjoy each other's company or something. And uh, so he read the script, and he really liked it, too. And I met with him, and he he thought he could do it. He just he was nervous that he couldn't play the older part, you know, this guy, the guy who's, like, balding and stuff in the movie. Anyway, um, so I gave him the idea. I was like, well, why don't we just wait six years? We'll shoot the past now and then wait six years and do the present. And he was like, that's the best idea I ever heard. And we gave each other high fives. And then I called my producers, and... Uh, and they said uh, they said we were crazy, and they wouldn't give us the money. So we we basically waited six years to do it anyway. You know, you could have done that. We could have done it. You know, but anyway, it was meant to be this way. So, um, you know, so finally, you know, we had tried to get it going sometimes, and then finally, it just the timing just worked out. You know, I think any movie you make is kind of a miracle. You know, and it just it just happened. Just everything fell into place all of a sudden, and we were able to make it. You know. Um, and I was thankful that I waited for them. You know, again, if I had made it 12 years ago, they were in high school still. You know, they wouldn't have been in the movie. And if I had made it at any other time in their lives, they wouldn't have been ready. You know, and and uh, as as open or you know what I mean. There was just there was a blessing I think in waiting. The first day we started shooting the movie, uh, we're doing this moving scene with Ryan, and a bulldog rode uh, came down the street riding a skateboard, and we knew that was like a good omen for us. You know. <laughs> Because <laughs> you don't see that too often. You, you know? don't? No. Do you? Have you seen that? I've seen it on YouTube, but not a, like a. Anyway. Um, you know, Ryan. Ryan. He was were... so Ryan was so bummed out it didn't make it into the movie because we were like, that's you know. Also, yeah, there's a rainbow in the. You know, there was a lot of things that kept happening in the movie. You know, rainbows every day, basically. That damn rainbow was pretty amazing. Like. Yeah, I mean. it just happened. So. So Ryan's character, you were talking earlier about. You said on the side over there that he he's, he snatched one of your your shirts or something or sweatshirt. Yeah, um, he thinks I look cool. You know, he likes my hair. He thinks it's you know whatever. And uh, so he wanted. To, he was there was another movie he was trying to do where he uh, was gonna. You know, I had met with him about Blue Valentine, and he can't. You know, he asked me if he could take pictures of my hairline because he wanted to look like me for this other movie he was doing. And uh, and they told him that if he did that, he would attract, he would compromise his attractiveness. And uh, so they told him he couldn't do that. So when I had the opportunity to work with him, I said it would be my honor if you compromised your attractiveness. I won't mind. It's okay. And so yeah, he did those things. And like he took my shirt. Yeah, whatever. So you're saying he looks a little bit like you in this movie? I, I mean, guess so. I, one could I, make that argument. Yeah. I guess so. My yeah. I mean, he yeah. There's a, there's an acting thing that he's doing like me. I think my wife says he's playing me sometimes, but I don't know if he's playing me or I'm playing him because you know when you edit a movie, you spend I spend like a year in the editing room, and it always happens. You you start becoming your characters. You know, you start acting like the people. So I think I'm actually just doing him right now. So you're doing him doing yeah. you or something. Yeah, pretty much. Got it. Got it. Got it. It's very comp- confusing. <laughs> Um, I want to leave some time for uh, folks in the audience to ask a couple questions. So if you have a question, uh, raise your hand. We have a microphone. Yeah. Uh, the question third, to the right. Third row. Hi. Um, can Hello? you talk a little bit about your process for like working with actors? In terms, you mentioned uh, with your tape recorder how you like were trying to get performance back then. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, there's so many different ways to you know, get performances. Um, 
I mean, you know, for instance, there's a scene on the bridge. That was one way, you know. Uh, you know, they both knew their characters, so he did that. The scene in the car was, uh, you know, another way. Uh, I, I don't know. I, you know, I'm, I kind of instigate things a lot of times, you know. And then if you have great actors, you can kind of, like, let them kind of go for it, you know. I don't, as a writer, I don't have any ego with my words, you know. I'm not stuck to the words on the page, um, I would rather have it be, in fact, I'm a little embarrassed by my words on the page, you know, I, I, and I would rather have them completely obliterated and let, the, let, let every line of dialogue be rewritten on the spot by the actors, you know, and like come from them. So I think, in, in my opinion, uh, the more that it can come from an actor, the better it is, you know, the more that it can be their idea the more true it's going to be to them as, you know, their characters. I think in my first film, Brother Tide, I had uh, exerted so much control over every aspect of the film from, you know, the actors to the lines. And I, you know, this movie, I had 1,224 storyboards, but I threw all those storyboards away. I didn't use them, you know, because I wanted to make it alive, you know. And I think, you know, for me anyway, the more you try to control the thing, I mean, maybe it works for some people, but, you know, if you ever, like, give an actor a line reading or something, tell them, no, say it like this. Uh, it just ruins it, you know. And I think that's, I think that's, uh, that goes to my whole process. Because you watch a movie in your head, you know. Whatever you're envisioning is what's in your head. And then if you try to like, f you know, at least for me, if I try to force that thing out exactly the way I see it, then it, it creates stiffness around, you know what I mean? And not life. And so I'm more interested in finding the life. So I try not to, I just try to use that as an inspiration and as kind of like the bar or whatever and then hope that they can do something better than that. Do you know what I mean? I want to, like, I really do want to be surprised by an actor, you know? And so you have to do different techniques to get them, to get it out of them, you know? Uh, some of the stuff, you know, you know, in, in the, in, you know, the bridge scene, it was all about spontaneity and the ukulele scene, it's, it's all about actor spontaneity in a moment, you know, we're shooting on film, 16 millimeter with one lens, it's a 25 millimeter lens. It's almost like a quarter of football for an actor. They have to like get something out and they want to play too. They want to do great things, you know? Um, and then, you know, conversely with this other stuff in the car, we were shooting with two cameras at a time. We were shooting on the red camera uh, two at a time. Then we'd always have one camera on Ryan, one camera on Michelle. And we would shoot just for days sometimes because I was trying to find, a moments, find moments that were eroded by time. So like that driving scene, was, that's the fifth hour on the second day of shooting, you know. The first day of shooting, I got so car sick. I couldn't, you know, because I was like looking in the monitor and, you know, throwing up all over the place. Um, uh, Anyway, I always throw up in mo when I'm shooting those kind of things. Anyway, uh, so the next day I was right up there with them, and and you know Ryan actually was like, he was he hated me that day, you know, because like I just decided I was just going to take Michelle's side against him, and it worked in the scene. It's like we ganged up on him in the scene, you know, and he got he just came out fighting so bad, you know, like he got so indignant towards us, and then we had the great performance, you know, and afterwards we were we were pals again, you know. Anyway, maybe that helps. Okay, let's get some more questions. There's one in the front. Oh, on this side. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so the fact that this took like 12 years to write, I have, I guess, a multi-part question. You, are you writing your next film? Yes. And if so, how, how is your process different? Because I'm sure there has to be more of a turnaround now. 
Yeah. Um, well, four years, well, right before my boy, my boy Cody, who's like three and a half now, right before he was born, like the month before he was born, I got three ideas. They just all came to me one night. And so on one of those ideas, this, this film called The Place Beyond the Pines, I, uh, I started talking to some writers because I felt like I was, I'm so slow as a writer, you know, and I felt like I wanted someone to help me out with that one. So I sat down with this guy, Ben Cochio, who's the director of the film Zero Day. And uh, we just had countless meetings and, uh, and uh, you know, he, we've been working on that script. I mean, it's his script. He he's, has solo screenplay credit to it, but it's our story. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be shooting that in the summer. And I also just sold a series to HBO. So I'm, I'm in the process of writing the pilot for that right now. And, uh, yeah, and then optioning out some other stuff, you know, trying to keep busy. I'm hoping it's not 12 years for the next one. I mean, but whatever it takes, you know, if, if that's what it... But like I said, the chess game earlier, like I felt like I had 10,000 moves, you know. And hopefully for the next one I can still, you know, win the game, you know, win the chess match or whatever with like maybe 1,000 moves. You know, just maybe get better at it. Next question here in the front. Uh, you mentioned being really interested in stripping away the artifice and have referred to getting at the reality of the scene. I'm wondering, maybe other than Creepshow, uh, are there any films out there that stand as good examples of like stripping away artifice and getting to the heart of what's real? And, yeah. and if also filmmakers that you follow that you found like, those guys did it. Maybe yeah. I, these are the guys I got to study or get into. Yeah, uh, Gospel According to St. Matthew by Pasolini is like, I went and saw that movie and, uh, you know, it's about, you know, Jesus Christ, you know, but it's it's shot almost like a documentary with all non-professional actors. He puts like uh, songs like Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child, like by Odetta on the soundtrack. And uh, there's like Russian, uh, you know, Russian like tribal, you know, whatever, traditional Russian like music. And it's, it's an amazing film. I thought I was having a heart attack when I was watching it, actually, and I had to go to the emergency room. Um, so that's the movie. That's and I think I love that movie because it's taking such a it's taking such a cl you know whatever classic historical biblical story and making it alive and real and new. You know, I also like you know the work of John Cassavetes. You know, um, Woman Under the Influence, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, Husbands. Um, so many I don't know so many films that I love, but those. I think those, those two filmmakers, Pasolini and Cassavetes, is in terms of like really, you know, you know, finding kind of living, breathing kind of moments that aren't so planned out, so mapped out, you know, they're alive, you know. Yeah. We're on this side now, so let's see. Second row. Okay. Hi. Hello. Um, I'm just curious as to know how long it took you to actually film this film because it took you so long and you're yeah. talking about improv and just going with it. Just wondering that. Yeah, we shot uh, the past, the kind of falling in love s section in thir 13 days and then we took a month off and then we shot the present in 12 days. So there's never enough time, but then you kind of work, I think, just try to work within those boundaries, you know? I think boundaries are very important as a filmmaker, you know? I think sometimes these other filmmakers, like real successful filmmakers, they get everything they want, you know? And they have no, like, leash on them anymore, you know? And then their, their movies kind of feel that way, you know? I think it's nice to have the boundaries because then you know where the edge is. Then you know how far you have to go, you know? 
we're we're running short on time, so I want to make sure we get another question in. Can we do that? Were we on that side? There we are. Sorry, on this side. Coming around. Thank you. Um, I'm just wondering when you're going for this naturalistic style, like how when you're thinking about the setting, like especially when you're indoors, how much are you putting in lights? How much are you considering that? And how much are you trying to create a physical reality for the actors? Yeah, uh, we try not to light between setups. You know, uh, I think uh, Harris like you know, is one of the pioneers of this this style of of cinema lighting. And Andre Perec, who's my cinematographer, was Harris's assistant for many years. And he will always go into a scene and just light the room, get the room set up, you know. And there are lights, you know what I mean? But usually they're in practical places. They live in the room. There's no, I don't, I don't like shooting where there's, where you can't look 360 degrees, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, where there's, you have to like watch out for a light stand. I think it's better, well, for my style to like let it be in the room. You know, if you need to gel up a light, just gel up the light bulbs that are in the chandelier or whatever, you know. But, you know, I like functionality in movie making, you know, I just want everything to be functional. And, uh, and that talks to the artifice, not only the artifice in, the, in what the characters are doing, you know, or the scenarios, but actually in the making of the film, too. Just try to strip the artifice away. You know, I think sometimes movies are made, and I love these movies, like Avatar, those big movies, you know, where, it's, where they just try to create their own world, you know. Sometimes I would drive down the street in New York, and there's like 40 trucks parked outside, and, you know, you can't even walk down the street. And I look, and they're doing like a close-up of somebody or something. And, uh, and I always, whenever I see that, I'm thinking that, you know, they're trying to keep the world out, you know, and create their own world. But with this movie... We tried to uh, embrace the world, you know, and instead of like keeping the world out, we tried to put our characters into the world, you know, and then, you know, it's, it's see, see what's happening, you know, and then, then try to see what happens with that experiment, you know. We're almost out of time. I've been meaning yeah. to ask you something for a very long time, and I always see it, and I always forget to ask you about the tattoo on your, on your right hand. Um, what's the backstory on that? It's a terrific tattoo. Yeah, I, when I was shooting that race car movie, um, uh, folks can see it. There's, there's uh, yeah. the five, five letters, amigo. Yeah, amigo. Yeah, I was shooting that race car movie in California, and I used to, I hate speed, so I would get drunk, you know, to hang out the window with the car, you know, and uh, don't, don't try this. Don't at home, try please. this. And one night I was, I was so messed up, and I was at a Home Depot parking lot because we were shooting video, and the tapes would run out. And by the end of that movie, I was shooting like 13 cameras at a time, just all with suction mounts on different cars. And then we'd hit record and then go out and do crazy stunts and then come back to like a parking lot. So we were at this Home Depot parking lot at 10 o'clock at night. And um, good cue on that music. Um, that was getting emotional. That's like, that was like an underscoring of a movie. Anyway, so I, I, was, I was... Thank you. I was... Uh, I was changing the camera, changing the tape, and I heard this voice say, hey, amigo. And I looked up, and there was a Hispanic guy. He was, like, five feet tall, and he was covered in sweat, and he had a, a, a hat, like a baseball cap, that had, like, fallen down on his face because he was so wet with sweat. And I looked at his shirt, and it was white, and it 
started to turn yellow and at the bottom it was like gold and he lifted up his shirt and he had a knife wound or something in his belly and his he had his intestines were coming out of his stomach and he said can you help me and i i said yeah man with everything i got i reached in my pocket and i gave him all my pocket change and i went back to the car and uh started changing the tapes and i thought to myself is that the kind of help this guy just asked me for or did he need some help you know and uh, and so I, I turned around, I went back to go look for him, and he had like disappeared back into the fabric of the parking lot. And uh, I was so disappointed in myself, you know, that I didn't like, you know, because like those opportunity or those things happen in your life one time, you know, like a few times in your life where you can actually be who you think you are, you know. And uh, and so I wrote this on my hand to uh, just always be responsible for what I did with this hand. If I gave someone money or I shook the hand or got in a fight, it had to be my responsibility. You know, and that's also the day I stopped drinking. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Derek C. and Francis' film, Blue Valentine, opens on December 31st. Uh, it's an absolutely terrific movie. I hope you get a chance to see it. And I want to thank Derek for being here today. Thank you, Eugene. Thank you, everyone.